morning. Morning. Uh, you heard the scripture, but I just I want to read it again. It's one of those scriptures that um, sticks in the mind, especially the images of this of this scripture from Isaiah two. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these visions of the end. May they inspire us in this season to give us a different sight, a different vision, one that isn't darkened by the darkness, but is a new light to see ahead and to see a future with your promises in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and this is the beginning of what we call the Christian year, and we begin this first Sunday at the end. All of the scriptures for Advent are not really about the beginning, but about the end a vision of the last days, end of all the years, the end of all time, are the things we're gonna be spending time with. And it's an unusual way to start the year, to begin at the beginning, to begin at the end. Sometimes fiction writers do this. I don't know if you've ever, or maybe you're the type of person, I won't make you raise your hand because it's embarrassing, but you might be the kind of person who when you first start a novel, read the last page first. Some of you are like this. And I will try not to judge you for this. But, but some fiction writers have caught on and thought this is a really interesting idea. And so there are some fiction writers who will write their novel and they'll write the end at the very beginning on the very first page. You know, they'll start the novel with something like, and the butler killed the baroness. Or after 1,884 years, the spaceship landed on Alpha Centauri 7. And then the rest of the novel is us working out how they got from where they are in the beginning to where they got at the end. You spend the whole book not wondering how it's going to turn out because you already know, but instead you spend the entire book looking and watching and waiting for signs of how it's supposed to go because you have the special insight. You know what's going to happen. And so as events come up, you think, aha, that's going to help them get Dalpha Centauri. Aha, he bought that gun because he's going to kill the Baroness. Something like that. Finnegan's Wake is a famously uh, confusing novel by James Joyce. And it begins in the middle of a sentence. And that sentence actually doesn't make any sense until the very end of the novel because the very end of the novel completes that very first sentence and it goes 
in a cycle like that. Christianity and the Christian year is a little bit like that. The end, we're given the end, and we're given now, of course, our present. And they don't fully come together until we arrive at the end. Then the beginning makes sense. To begin at the end means we are told what's going to happen. We're told how it's going to turn out, but not how we got there. And so that means that our life now, Advent, this time, is not really about us getting together to decide how to make everything go the right way, how to plan for how to get to the right destination, but it's about watching and listening and waiting for the signs of the promise coming true, not getting distracted by other possible endings that people put forth to make us angry or to make us afraid. By beginning with the end, Advent sets us up for the entire year, teaching us to pay attention to the promises and the answers to those promises of God's promised future. So that's a little introduction to Advent, but what, what are we actually looking for? What are the promises that God is going to make true at the end? This morning's scripture is one of those promises, and it's one that just never, ever gets old. It continues to, to inspire, and especially this image of people picking up large hammers and beating weapons, swords, spears, into plows and pruning tools. It's always a challenge and it's always inspiring, I think, because it's such an unusual image. When we think of an end to violence, an end to war, something we're thinking about a lot right now, as we come closer to a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, we're thinking a lot about war. And we're thinking a lot about the existence, the, almost the prevalence of war. The last hundred years have been the most bloody and warring of human history. We live more in war than any other time. We're thinking a lot about war. We're thinking a lot about violence for those reasons, but we're thinking about it for other reasons too. Just in the last couple of weeks, we're thinking about violence in Idaho, Virginia, and of course, Colorado Springs. And we often think, how is it going to stop? And usually our mind goes to something like, we have to overpower. We have to overcome the bad guys. We have to overpower the violence. We have to restrain. This is often what we think. We think in order to have peace, we need a larger defense budget. Peace is a cessation of hostilities. Peace is the nuclear stalemate. If we both have the same amount of nuclear weapons, then we can achieve peace. That's the real world. That's what peace really looks like, not this stuff in Isaiah. What more do you want? But Isaiah's vision of peace is more. He sees, first of all, the nations, plural, at the end. He doesn't just see one nation. He's not seeing one nation that finally at the end beat up all the other nations in one. And that's how peace was achieved. It's not just Israel. It's not just Judah. It's not just the church. It's not just America at the end. It's all the nations together are there. Peace has been achieved, but not by one country winning over all the others. 
They also didn't achieve peace by stockpiling weapons in order to achieve a stalemate. Weapons at this time have become totally useless. They've become a waste of good iron. A sword or a tank has become as obsolete as an eight-track tape deck or a Blu-ray disc player or a VHS. If you go to a thrift store, you see tons of these VHSs, you know, obsolete. At this time, that's what, that's what all the weapons become. People look at it and they say, wow, we could really use that iron, and they get to pounding. It's a stunning image, but is it real? It's a strange picture of the end, but could it be connected to reality? Right now in Ukraine, weapons make all the difference. The bravery of the Ukrainians is one thing, but it would be nothing without massive artillery flowing in from other nations. And more weapons are increasingly becoming the solution in response to recent shootings. More guards, more guns, even the teachers are arming themselves. So how do we get from here to this end in Isaiah? How do we get from here to the peace that Isaiah promises? Let's imagine for a minute that Isaiah is not in a naive fairy tale Bible land. Let's imagine that Isaiah actually understands international conflict. Let's see if maybe he offers us a path forward. It's important to know the context of Isaiah too. In just a few verses, this vision of Isaiah that I gave you this morning is an island in the beginning of Isaiah. Most of that is all about conflict. They, Judah knew conflict. They were being attacked by Assyria. They were led into exile. This is history. It was brutal. It was bloody. It was ugly. It was awful. Lots of people died. Most of Isaiah, if you just count up the verses, most of Isaiah is about conflict. These people understood conflict well. It's not the same as the current state of international affairs, not identical but it's also not a fairy tale. In Judah's case, they went pretty far off the rails. Assyria invaded. Assyria was much more powerful. Judah was no match. All seemed lost, and yet in the middle of this vision, we find a vision of peace. It happens, Isaiah says, because one day all nations will stream to God's house in order to learn peace. So there's two things here. One is this idea of learning peace, and then the second idea of God having his house here. Both are necessary. Let's talk about learning peace for a second. Isaiah is saying that our propensity to violence is a failure to learn and understand peace itself. We have not studied it well enough. We have not treated it as we might a craft. We study war. We learn war. We learn the tactics of war. There's a school in Columbus, Georgia, used to be called the School of the Americas. Now it's, I never, they made it this like very unmemorable name, so nobody remembers it, I feel like. Anyway, uh, it, it's, it's famous for um, uh, training South American militaries to subjugate and oppress the people uh, in, in their areas. So they would, uh, generals would come, and they learned how to subdue large populations. Um, they didn't subscribe to any kind of just war theory. They learned techniques of repression. They even learned genocide. 
toward their own civilians. They practiced war with precision and effectiveness. They made war into a craft. Why not peace? Is peace any different that we should not study it like we would any other craft? I'm a novice word worker. I will always be. I have the scars to prove it. Always learning. This last week, my dad and I worked on a new table. It took us several days just to get the boards glued together. Craft is hard. It takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of practice. You have to study in woodworking, for instance. You have to study the tools and know how to use them. You have to learn how to read the grain in wood. You have to study centuries of accumulated wisdom from different traditions, whether it's Europe, Scandinavia, Japan. Woodworking is not easy, but it can be learned, and peace is no different. Peace can be learned, so why don't we do it? Some people do. There are people who study the craft of peace. I'm thinking of one group just along the front range. They're actually in Colorado Springs. It's a group called Raw Tools. You've heard me mention them before. They literally pound firearms into gardening tools using a forge and an anvil. They're not against responsible gun ownership. What they are against is gun violence. And the heart of what they do is helping people who have been victimized by gun violence to tell their story, to forgive, and to heal. Someone with a story will tell their story of loss and violence, and then they'll pick up a hammer and they'll slam it against the muzzle of an artillery rifle or a semi-automatic pistol, something like what was used to harm them or their loved ones. We've invited this group, by the way, to Fort Collins in 2023. But I'm thinking of other people, too, who have studied the craft of peace. I'm thinking of Christian peacemaker teams, groups trained in peacemaking who work in conflict, conflict zones. And they, sometimes they do stuff that's really simple, like they just walk kids to school who are in dangerous situations. Or they go and they work in the fields and help and, and pick fruit with other people who are uh, threatened. But they also do other things. They'll put on large conferences. Well, they'll bring groups in conflict together and help them make peace. It's not a coincidence that this group, along with a lot of other peacemaking work, is organized by Christians. Christians, especially those in the Anabaptist tradition. That's because Anabaptists have taken seriously and practically Jesus' words about peace, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. They have understood those words like a woodworker consults a text on joinery, or a mason references a manual on pointing bricks. They say, we don't need to study war, we have all we need to study peace. Let's get to work. Let's study and learn it. So that's one thing. We can learn peace. That's what the vision shows us. The second thing in Isaiah's vision is that the school for peace is not just any school. It's God's own house. Isaiah says that God comes and makes his dwelling place among humans. And he's the one who teaches. He's the one who arbitrates. The very fact that God has a home here means that God is a God of peace. How did this happen? Now we're back to the whole Advent kind of story thing. At the end, we see that God has a home with us 
but we're wondering how did we get there? How did we get from here to there? Or, you know, when Judah reads this, they're saying, how did we get from our current situation of exile all the way to God having a home from us? We're being besieged by the Assyrians. And at the very end, God has a home. How did this happen? Was it that they got their act together? Did a church finally get it right? Did one of the churches finally figure it out and do it right? And then God said, that's a place I can hang out in. John, in his first chapter of his gospel, says this. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. God came and made peace with us. God did not wait for us to get our act together and then say, okay, now we're all at peace. I'm going to be moving in. God makes peace with us by moving in, by renting a room in the neighborhood, by being with us. Paul writes to the Colossians, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The cross of God reveals God's determination to make peace with us, no matter the cost. And it did cost. When Jesus was here, we gathered up all of our mastery of the craft of violence and oppression. And we focused it all on Jesus. And Jesus took everything that we gave to him and he gathered it all up and absorbed it. And like a master craftsperson, Jesus took all of our diabolical weapons and beat them into plowshares. He took sin and forged it into grace. He took death and repurposed it into eternal life. God in Christ makes peace a real possibility in this brutal and violent world world. We don't need to wait until the end to start learning the trade. We desperately need to learn now. If we don't, we risk teaching our children to live by the sword, to live with violence as a way of life. The idea that violence is not just a last resort, but really the best option. We risk growing accustomed to a world of shootings and invasions. We risk growing used to the idea that young people will die in battle and innocent people will be killed in crowds. We risk escalation in force and security and the handing over of power not to those who are wise and exemplary, but aggressive and powerful. It all begins here in this season when we wait for God's coming. Because the coming of God is all about peace peace with us, peace with our enemies, and peace with all creation. It begins here as we thank and praise him for this peace, and then we pick up our hammers, and we pick up the cruelty of the world, and we get pounding. Amen. Word who became flesh, thank you for dwelling among us. Thank you for bringing peace and transforming our violence. Lord, we ask you to begin in our hearts. 
Take the anger and the hatred, the envy and the bitterness in our hearts and pound it into something good. Help us to be people of peace, of love, of hope in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.